You are listening to the sermon audio of New Hope Community Church in Canaan, New Hampshire. For more information, visit our website at newhopecommunity.net. If you would open your Bibles with me to 1 Peter. And in our study of 1 Peter, this morning I'll be reading 1 Peter chapter 4 and verses 12 through 19. 1 Peter chapter 4 and verses 12 through 19. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed, for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. For it is time for judgment to begin with the family of God. And if it begins with us, What will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So then, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. This is the word of God. If you've been following the news, you probably already know that Pastor Andrew Brunson returned to the U.S., Uh, following a two-year detention in Turkey. Uh, And after leaving a visit to the Oval Office, uh, he was flocked by reporters who wanted to know, what's your next plan? What do you want to do? And he said, well, I I think I would like to write a book, but I don't want to write it right now because I don't want to capitalize on the interest of my story right at this moment. But then he went on to say, my calling is to preach Jesus Christ. I want everyone to hear who Jesus is. And I couldn't have picked a better news story to illustrate the relevance of what Peter's going to talk about in his letter when he talks about Christian suffering. Uh, And so I want to direct your attention to the passage we read earlier, 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 19. Uh, Because here we are reminded that what Peter said in the first century is just as relevant and applicable to today uh, in the 21st century. Uh, So you notice in your Bibles, typically this is sort of a a new paragraph, a new section. Uh, It does begin with the phrase, dear brothers or beloved, which typically indicates a a new subject within a letter. But you'll quickly see that it is intricately connected to everything else that Peter has talked about. Uh, And in fact, Often there's things said in this section that go right back to the very beginning of the letter to chapter 1. But on the subject of suffering for the cause of Christ, imagine Peter writing these words to a flock that is already scattered throughout different provinces. And there he will simply begin in this section by telling them they should expect increased suffering as followers of Christ. Not a picture that things are going to get better. Uh, This is just like a a cloud right now. But but expect that you will see increased suffering. And so you notice in verse 12, it says, Dear friends, 
a term of great affection and love, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering, as though something strange were happening to you. And those two phrases should jump out of the out of the page at us. Do not be surprised and do not think it strange. In other words, this should be something we see as expected. Uh, not that this is foreign to us, not that this is unusual, uh, not that no one ever told us that it was going to be like this, in spite of what we sometimes seen in the emphasis of what's called the prosperity gospel, that God just wants you to be material, rich, and blessed, and happy in this life, Peter presents the true words of God here. Expect. Don't, don't think this is bizarre or unusual uh, that this happens. And the reason for that, he's already laid out in the basic framework of this letter, is that this world, as followers of Christ, is not our home. Uh, and if you just flip the page back to 1 Peter chapter 1, you notice in the very opening verse of this letter, we read Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect strangers in the world, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Notice right away, he's reminding them of their beginning. You, you were strangers in this world. Then flip to chapter 2 and verse 11. Once again, dear friends, beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers in this world. And perhaps it is good for us to hear those terms again to remind ourselves that as much as we have a job to do for Christ in this world, this, this is not our home. It was never meant to be our permanent dwelling place. Over 50 years ago, A.W. Tozer, a uh, pastor with Christian Missionary Alliance, uh, wrote a devotional. In the devotional, he, he made this comment, we must never forget that this world is not our playground. It is our battleground. And I think all you need to do is sometimes look around you to say, has, has the church today lost sight of that? Have we at times become too comfortable in the world or expected that the world would, would welcome our friendship? with them. Peter says, if, if that's been our approach, we're forgetting that, that this world is not your home. And if you think, realize that, then it shouldn't come as a shock or surprise that persecution comes in many different forms, from the extreme form of imprisonment, martyrdom, uh, to the other side of that, to being marginalized, looked down upon, criticized, and in a sense, sought to silence the voice of truth from Scripture. But notice again in verse 12 of our text, he says, these painful trials you are suffering. So not only is the world not our home, but we are reminded here that fiery trials will increase as you walk in faith. And, and the phrase is very peculiar that Peter picks here. It talks about fiery trials. Uh, now, part of this could be drawn. There's a passage, certainly in the Old Testament, a number of places speaks of God refining his people through affliction, through the furnace of affliction. Uh, but even in Proverbs, there's a reference to this refining process. In other words, fire associated with the, the work of metals to, to burn out impurities. 
And so maybe as Peter coins this phrase, fiery trials, he's thinking of this refining element that indicates not that one has done something wrong, and this is why you're suffering for the faith, but because you've done everything right, because you've walked in obedience. Another interesting facet to the fiery trials would be the exact date of this letter, because it's either written shortly before or shortly after Nero would set fire to Rome. And, and following that, the Christians would become an object of increased persecution, uh, because Nero would look to, to blame that on, on someone other than himself. Uh, and that is probably during that same time frame in which Paul would be martyred by Nero and caught up in that suffering and persecution. So as you think of that phrase, these fiery trials, this is saying this is the reality of the Christian life. And although we may see it differently in different parts of the world, we should never lose sight that the expectation is you will face increased suffering. And especially as we are so much closer today than Peter was to the Lord's return. Notice in, in the very beginning again of this letter, 1 Peter 1 and verse 7, not only opening by saying you're strangers, but notice in verse 7, he says, these, referring to these difficulties and trials, these have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine. It may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. That basic principle in the Christian life, trials and difficulties for those of us who are walking with God are intended to refine us. And yet we often know our first thought is to pray that God would remove it. And this should help us better understand how do we pray for places where we know there is persecution for believers. We shouldn't always pray that God would just remove that, that they would have the same freedoms that we have, because in reality, those persecutions and difficulties have, if you look through the course of church history, have strengthened the church, have refined it, uh, have quantitated what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. So Peter's counsel to a scattered flock is not just you're having it now happen. Expect it will get worse because you are followers of Christ, not because you are not. So while alerting believers to the greater trials to come, Peter now transitions to his second point, and that is simply to rejoice in suffering as followers of Christ. Expect it, but, but now rejoice in it. And you see in verse 15 of chapter 4, Peter writes, if you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. So we do want to qualify this. Peter says that you are blessed if you suffer. You should rejoice in it as long as you are suffering for the right reasons. And the reason is because of your faith in Christ. And so in that 15th verse, he, he gives you a summary of offenses. And, and some of these are very glaring. Murderer, thief, any other criminal. It's, it's the last one that kind of catches your attention, meddler. Um, 
Meddler comes from two words meaning belonging to another and overseeing. So in other words, you're, you're busy overseeing and looking into something that is going on with someone else. And so in, in looking at this, he says, if you're suffering for any of these reasons, that's not the kind of suffering I'm referring to here. That, that's suffering because of your own sinfulness, because of maybe God's punishment on you. And what he needs to reassure the believers is if you're suffering because of obedience, this is a badge of honor. You, you should not be shocked at this. And this may be intended too. The, the letter of 1 Peter, it's very difficult to discern if his primary audience is Jewish Christians or if it's Gentile Christians. And you can kind of go back and forth through the letter because of different things he says. But it may be telling here that especially for Gentile Christians, they have not had this kind of element in their history. So for Jewish Christians, they would have the history of the people of Israel. They'd be very familiar with what their people went through as they sought to follow God, the opposition they faced. But imagine if you were a Gentile Christian. You don't, you don't have that context or framework. And, and here you are thinking and rejoicing that Christ is your Lord and Savior. And, and now you have all these things coming into your life. How, how do you process that? What does this mean? And so Peter reminds them, well, here's the thing that you need to keep in mind. You can rejoice in suffering as long as you are suffering for the right reasons. And then you look down at verse 19, and there he adds one more time that reminder, because at the end of, or excuse me, beginning of verse 19, he says, so then, those who suffer according to God's will. They're not suffering because they've done something legally wrong. That would be God's justice on them. They're not suffering because they've been disobedient, which would be God's discipline on them. They're suffering because they have sought to obey Christ, to be diligent followers of Christ. So notice that the believer's rejoicing is not found in the experience of pain itself, but it's found in the fact that you look at these painful circumstances, persecution and suffering, and you see what it results in. And where Peter now reminds them of is this suffering proves their identification with Jesus Christ. That in the eyes of the world, they are being identified as followers of Christ. And so you see in verse 13, he brings this out to us when he says, but rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when this glory is revealed. The word participate means, as you can tell, uh, to share in. Uh, to have fellowship together in. No way implying that somehow the suffering of Christians is salvific. It doesn't do anything to save you or save someone else. But it's the point of identification. That this is an obvious to the world that you are placing your love and obedience to Christ above all else. And it's almost as if Peter can't get out how, how great a joy this is because you notice how he repeats, not just rejoice in verse 13, but then in the middle of that says, uh, you should be overjoyed, uh, often rendered glad. He's picking another word to try to build on, this is the, the joy that is yours in Christ. 
knowing that your identification with Christ is made known. But then he also adds to that the, the future aspect as we look forward to the glory that will be revealed. I like how Paul sort of puts this when he says, uh, he contrasts what you're going through right now versus what awaits you in eternity. And he sort of puts it this way. He says, you know, your, your present trials, which probably in our thinking always our present trials look like this. Paul says, your present trials in comparison to eternity are, are like this. They're nothing compared to the weight of glory that will be yours in Christ Jesus. What a perspective that not just we need as we can kind of sit comfortably and look at this maybe from the outside, but imagine for those believers in Peter's audience to, to be able to, to be brought into a perspective that helps them to see the bigger picture here and to rejoice. These, these trials are fiery, as Peter says. They are painful. It's not saying as Christians they're not hurting. They are. But Peter says in the midst of that, your, your joy is grounded in Christ. And it doesn't take us long to realize, where did they get this kind of teaching from? And, and if Peter's writing this, where did Peter get this, this notion that you can rejoice in the midst of suffering? Well, the answer is obvious. He got it from Christ. Jesus, as he was getting ready to send out the twelve, would say to them, they will hate you because they hated me. But what an identification he's establishing there. They, they will see you, and they will see me, and they will hate you because you remind them of me. So there's both a painful process in this, but also a privilege. Notice in verse 14, Peter goes on to state, If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed, for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. So there are many different forms of suffering, not just the ultimate of martyrdom, uh, but here if you are insulted, if you are the object of rebuke and reviling by the world, the world does not appraise you as I appraise you in Christ Jesus. And so he adds to that statement there that you are blessed. You, you are displaying the characteristics of, of godliness. And then he says, the spirit of God and the spirit of glory rests on you. What, what, what a picture of God's presence, God's power enveloping you as you rejoice in the midst of suffering. In fact, it's this last little phrase that the spirit of glory, spirit of God rests upon you, uh, became a common epitaph on many funeral or on many tombstones in the early centuries that believers put on their tombstones as a reminder, this is the rest that is ours in Christ. Following Andrew Brunson's uh, return to the U.S., uh, there were numerous press conferences. They talked to his lawyers, the legal team that was involved in some of the, the tense negotiations. And his legal team mentioned this. They said, well, there were really three points in our legal defense of this pastor. Uh, the first was that, that he was innocent. The second is that he, he tremendously loved Turkey. 
So prior to his imprisonment, he had been living and working in Turkey as a Christian evangelist for 20 years. So they said, well, here's our defense. He's, he's innocent. Uh, he loves Turkey. Oh, and our third defense is he loves Jesus. And I thought, what a good strategy, except you have it reversed. And I'm sure from Andrew Brunson's response, it would be, I love Jesus. I love Turkey. And I am an innocent man. And what a way to, to look at how we can stand in the midst of suffering and yet be able to rejoice in Christ. But this all brings us and leads us to Peter's final point, because it's not enough to just say, well, expect this and, and rejoice in this. But then finally, to realize spiritual growth and the kingdom of God advances because of suffering, not, not in spite of it, but because of it. And so you see this as you look at verses 16 and following, where suffering and persecution promotes personal holiness and worship. Verse 16, however, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. For it is time for judgment to begin with the family of God. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And, and just sort of think for a moment when, when Peter writes here, don't be ashamed. What scene may have played through Peter's thoughts as he said that? I, I was once ashamed. When, when they asked me, do you know who Jesus was? I, I was ashamed to say that I knew him. But he's come a long way in his spiritual growth and maturity. Not because I think of easy circumstances, but facing exactly what he's telling his congregation and these other believers they need to do. Think of how persecution suffering promotes personal holiness. You're not worshiping God because he's, quote unquote, doing everything for you. Remember, uh, Satan would seek to parade Job before God's presence. His argument was, of course, this guy loves you. You've given him everything. You know, he's, why wouldn't he want to worship you? Because you've given him so much. Uh, let's start taking that away. And let's see what his thoughts are about you. And as you read reports of those who are suffering for the faith, you find out that there's a clarity to their worship. They're worshiping God not for what he has given them, but for who he is. And there's a big difference between those two approaches. And so it promotes. But we also see in verse 17 and then into verse 18, it should fuel our passion for the lost and the unchurched. You know, as verse 17 is a humble reminder straight out of the Old Testament that because Israel was God's chosen people, set apart, they would be first in privileges, but they would be first in judgment. And so there is this reminder to those of us who know Christ as Lord and Savior, um, we, we will be held accountable. How have we not just acted on our faith, but how have we sought to be diligent servants of God in an environment where we have so many opportunities that many of our brothers and sisters in Christ do not? Do we often tend to forget those who are in chains and in prison? You know, for every one individual like Pastor Brunson 
who's made the news, there are thousands who will not be read about in the paper, who at times are not even known by others immediately around them, but they are imprisoned because of their faith, because of their love for Jesus Christ. And so it's striking that you have this tremendous burden for the lost that grows out of suffering and persecution. Not a sense where we retreat and like we have to protect ourselves, but, but this burden, what about those who don't hear this message? And, and you hear that in this passage so clearly. And you hear it from Peter saying, this is how Christians should look around them. This is even how they should view the very captors that are holding them. But in this fact that the kingdom of God and spiritual growth is advanced through suffering and hardship, it confirms the credibility of the Christian faith. Because you see how Peter brings this to a close in verse 19. No magic pill here. No shaded glasses to put on. Suddenly everything looks perfect. But he says, so then those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. Persevere in the faith. That word commit is an interesting verb. It means to deposit. And, and you want to think back in ancient times, you didn't have banks or anything like that. So if you were going to take a trip, you often would take your, your money or whatever you were considered valuable and take it to a friend to entrust to them to keep while you were gone. You would deposit it in their hands. So Peter says, knowing the reality, persecution is going to increase. And historically, you know that's going to be true. Peter says, here's what you need to do. Deepen your trust in the faithful creator. Very unusual title for God. Nowhere else in the New Testament is he referred to as creator. He's faithful and that he's trustworthy. And the creator would emphasize that he has the power to do all things. Even greater power than Nero. Greater power than the leader of North Korea or any other place. What a a reminder to them why they can have hope. Why they can rejoice. Because their victory is in Christ Jesus. Go to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 8. And as we think of the development of the early church, you see in Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 3, a scene that takes place after the stoning of Stephen. So the the first sort of official recorded martyr of the early church. Right after this happens, you pick up in verse 1 of chapter 8, and it says, And Saul was there, giving approval to his death. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off men and women and put them in prison. Now that certainly is a very terrifying scene. And you may want to focus on different things in there, but I in particular want to focus on what did this persecution do? They scattered. The church didn't die, 
although the persecution against it intensified, that, that it went in every direction. And what do you know, a chapter later, we're reading about Saul, the believer. What a powerful reminder to us of God's sovereignty and the fact that we can only join in and echo an amen to what Peter says because of the victory that is ours in Christ. Because we have a great high priest who has gone before us, who fully empathizes with our every need, whom we can go to before the throne of grace for help and assistance and encouragement. And so may this help us better understand not just the role that this plays in our lives as we seek to live out our faith in a world clearly where Christianity is being marginalized and we can feel that in the workplace, we can feel it in conversations we might have with others, but to even then better pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ in other parts of the world where, where this letter is not just what we need to hear, but it's also what they not only need to hear, but what they are living every day. Let's pray. Our gracious God, may the fact that we are victors in Christ, more than conquerors, not just be a catchy slogan or the basis for the words of a hymn or a chorus, but may it be the reality that we live out each day in our lives. May we never forget those who have gone before us, who have lived out this faith as an example to us. And may we not be negligent in failing to pray for those presently who are enduring such difficulties because of their love for you. May you keep before them that their present suffering is, is so short compared to what awaits them in your presence. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.